0: Good morning, church. The Bible reading today is taken from John chapter chapter 2, verse 13 to 25, and John chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. It can be found in your Pew Bible on page 1511. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at the table exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't They cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God.
1: Thanks, Cecilia. Um, can I ask you please to keep those Bibles open in front of you? Turn back to page 1511. It's a long passage, but we're going to make our way through the whole thing this morning. Um, also, to take out the leaflet that you are given as you came in, inside, as usual, a reasonably detailed outline that it would be good to have open so you can follow along. Um, So, Bible open, leaflet open. As you get sorted, let me lead us in prayer as we start. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who speaks and that your word doesn't return to you empty. So, we pray this morning, point us towards your Son, who he is, why he is worthy of all praise, and show us how we might live lives that bring glory to him. Amen. Okay, so if you look at the handout, you'll see on the top left there, just a reminder of what we've covered in this series in John's account of Jesus' life so far this year. Uh, The first week, we saw John's great introduction in the beginning, uh, the the way God has been at work since before the beginning of time. Uh, The second week, uh, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus, who is gathering a following of people. And then last week, the extraordinary um, miracle that he performs of turning water into wine in the wedding at Cana, uh, which we're told was the first of the signs that reveal his glory. As I said, today's reading is very long. It covers two distinct episodes, but both are about Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem. Now, given that Jerusalem is the capital city, uh, we have a heightened level of anticipation already. And we're told that it's during the Passover festival Uh, This is the annual commemoration of God rescuing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, thousands of years before. By the time we come to Jesus' day, the big question for the Jews was, when would God intervene again, this time to rescue them from Roman oppression? And so we're on high alert, will Jesus perform another sign to reveal his identity? Well, point one there, what sign can you show us? Verses 13 through 22. Let me start by reading chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, the first part of the passage. Follow along with me. John chapter 2, verse 13, page 1511. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from temple courts both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Again, a little bit more background. For the Jews, the temple lay at the very heart of their relationship with God. It was the place where God resided amongst his people, was the place where his people could meet with him. So it's no surprise, actually, that it's the very first place that Jesus will go to when he comes to Jerusalem for the first time. Sadly, what he finds is nothing short of crass profiteering. It's true that a certain degree of commerce was necessary, particularly for the pilgrims who'd come all the way from the Judean countryside. It was impractical for them to bring their own animal sacrifices And they would need local currency to be able to purchase what they needed when they got to Jerusalem. But evidently, the entire system had become rotten to the core, uh, corrupted through and through, in urgent need of reform. And so, Jesus cleanses or purifies the temple in what I think is a deliberate echo of what we saw last week, of those six stone water jars that were used for ceremonial washing. Now, there's a lot that I could say about the symbolism of what Jesus does at this point, let me just say this much: Jesus is not fooled by corruption. He is not fooled by abuse of power or exploitation of the marginalized. And that, I think, serves both as a solemn warning, but also a great reassurance. You see, in his father's house. Goodness and righteousness and honesty, those are things that matter to him. And he will sort them out. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 18, pick it up again, halfway through the left-hand column, page 1512. John 2, 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. But they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Well, the religious authorities understand what's going on. They grasp the challenge that Jesus is issuing as he cleanses the temple. Verse 18, the Jews, probably the Jewish leaders, They respond to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? They understand that Jesus' signs point to his identity. And in particular, by cleansing the temple and by calling it, verse 16, my father's house, my father's house, Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God's son. He's saying he's more than just God's representative or God's emissary, or God's agent. He is saying he is God's son, with all the rights and privileges and power that that confers. Now, that's actually not meant to be a surprise for us who've been reading our way through John's Gospel. See, back in chapter 1, verse 14, I printed there on your handout, back in chapter 1, verse 14, we heard that Jesus made his dwelling amongst us, uh, that phrase "their dwelling, I think it's meant to deliberately invoke the imagery of the temple, the place where God met with his people. And That means that if Jesus, God became man, the Word become flesh, if Jesus is God's Son, it means that he's coming to us and he's living with us. It is the most powerful way to describe who he is and what he can do. Of course, Jesus' reply is a delightful play on words. Uh, In verse 19, it's a delightful play on words. It's as if he's saying, all right, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, at one level, what Jesus is saying makes sense. Destroy this temple? Well, that actually needs destroying. He's just shown how it needs to be cleansed because of its corruption. But actually, at a deeper level, even if you could destroy this temple, this building, the real temple, the place where God dwells amongst his people, Jesus, even if you could destroy Jesus, he will be raised again. Literally, he will be resurrected. Uh, Jesus is saying, I think, that even death cannot hold God's Son down. It's as if he's almost daring the authorities to try. Now, of course, they don't understand what's going on. They don't get the metaphor. They just reply, verse 20, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days. And I suppose that if you can't quite understand it either, then don't worry too much. I say that because in verse 22, John tells us that after he was raised from the dead his disciples record what he had said and they believed the scripture and the words that he had spoken. That is, even Jesus' own disciples don't understand what he's talking about. Not until after his resurrection has taken place. Which, once again, I think is deeply reassuring. Uh, it's deeply reassuring for a couple of reasons. One is, well, we're going to see how poorly the disciples behave along the way. Nevertheless, they'll get there in the end. That's reassuring. But it's also reassuring because, for you and me, we stand on the other side of Jesus' death and his resurrection, which means that we have the gift of hindsight that no one there did. I think that's important because often I hear people say to me things like this. They say to me, if only I had been there when Jesus was there, I would have believed straight away everything that he said. Actually, what this account says is that no, you probably wouldn't have. But how fortunate you and I are that we get to look back with 2020 vision. Let me say something about application before we move on. Um, if the place where we meet God is in Jesus, not in a temple or in a building or a house of worship, if the place where we meet God is in Jesus, his son, then, and I hope this is not too long a bow to draw. What I want to say to us here at Trinity Church Adelaide is that we really oughtn't worry too much about the uncertainties around the site redevelopment. We really oughtn't be too bothered about the thought of us having to go off site for up to three years during the construction phase. Now, don't get me wrong, I understand it will be inconvenient. Uh, and I understand that wherever we go in that interim period, it won't be as good as what we have now. And it will be fantastic when we return. But if Jesus is the Word of God, then whenever we meet around the Word, He is with us by His Spirit. After all, if Jesus has come, if, if in Jesus God has come to us, as opposed to us having to go to see Him in some building if in Jesus God has come to us, if God's Son has taken on flesh, died and been raised again, if he has gone to all that, no building project or off-site relocation will ever stop him or thwart him or hinder his purposes. Well, that's the first part of the account. The middle few verses, point two, but still his hour has not yet come, And verses 23 through 25. Come with me back to the passage. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. At this point, John just kind of pauses for a moment to summarise everything that's taking place in Jerusalem, in the Passover, you know, that key event in the key location. At first glance, it looks pretty positive, doesn't it? Verse 23. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. That is, as I've said there on your handout, his signs point to his identity. But Jesus suspects that not everyone is fully on board Or maybe they're on board, but for the wrong reasons. Verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Uh, John, I think, is drawing a deliberate and intentional contrast. I've written this for you on your handout there. Verse 23, it talks about they believed in his name. Verse 24 says, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Literally, Jesus did not believe them. Apparently, Jesus knows that they are pursuing a different agenda to his. Different from what he's intended. Maybe the people want him to usher in a different kind of kingdom. Proclaim a different kind of gospel. Perhaps operate to a different timetable. We're reminded of chapter 2 verse 4. There on your handout. His hour has not yet come. And that leads us then into the second major episode that John records during Jesus' time in Jerusalem, during the Passover. It's where he meets Nicodemus. So, coming to chapter 3, the right-hand side of your handout, which I've headed point 3, come into the light. Let me read the first two verses of chapter 3 to set the scene. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, "'Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God.' for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Okay, so we meet Nicodemus. Now, what we know about Nicodemus is that he was a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. And that just kind of says warning to us, doesn't it? And if you think about it, we met the Pharisees back in chapter 1. When we did, they weren't very warm towards John the Baptist. And we've just seen in... The end of chapter 2 Jesus has cleansed the temple it's a direct challenge to the ruling authorities and yet despite all that Nicodemus it seems Nicodemus has seen that Jesus's signs point to his identity although clearly Nicodemus doesn't quite understand everything I say that for two reasons firstly did you notice verse 2 his question actually it's not a question at all he almost doesn't know what to say But the other reason, well, look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night. He came to Jesus at night. Uh, Those two little words, I think, are so very important. So why would this respected elder and leader go and see this Jesus at night? Well, I presume it's because he doesn't want anyone else to know is worried about other people will think as they say well nothing good happens after dark so let's see what happens pick it up in verse 3 verse 3 through 8 jesus replied very truly i tell you no one can see the kingdom of god unless they are born again how can someone be born when they are old nicodemus asked surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born jesus answered very truly i tell you no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, one level, Jesus' response to Nicodemus is pretty straightforward. Verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Interesting, isn't it? He talks about seeing the kingdom of God. He doesn't talk about entering the kingdom of God. He'll get to that later. But now he talks about seeing the kingdom of God, maybe because it's at night time, maybe because it's dark. The thing is to Nicodemus, of course, he can't focus on anything. He's completely thrown by the reference that Jesus gives to being born again. Because, in a very literalist way, Nicodemus responds with one of the more awkward biological observations of all time. First of all, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, as the parent of three children, um, I think I can safely say that the reason why newborn babies cry so much is because they're so traumatised by the trip out. Who would ever want to consider being born again? The thing is, for us readers, again, this shouldn't be a surprise. John has already promised that anyone who believes in Jesus can be adopted as God's child. Pretty there on your handout, John chapter 1, verse 12. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But Jesus is taking this a step further. He's not just saying that he offers legal adoption. He's not even talking about a second physical birth. When Jesus talks about being born again, he's describing something qualitatively different. Verse 5, being born of water and the Spirit. Being born born of water and the Spirit. Now, what do those terms mean? Well, being born of water probably refers to baptism, is my guess. It's not entirely clear. Being born of the Spirit... I think it is clearer. That's why I've given it a capital S and underlined it and put it in bold so you don't miss the S there. Being born of the Spirit, I think is probably a reference to the God-given transformation that one needs to enter God's kingdom. That is, entry into God's kingdom can only be given by God. can't be earned by us, can't be discovered by us. Just as a child can't choose to be born, only the parent can enable it, so only God's Spirit can choose for us to be born again. Now, if all that's a little bit confusing, and I understand if it is, this much, can I say, is crystal clear. John, Jesus isn't saying this to shoot Nicodemus down in flames. He's not saying, therefore, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Rather, He's saying it precisely so Nicodemus might understand that Jesus can bring eternal life. And yet, still, Nicodemus doesn't get it. It's like they're speaking a different language, stuck at cross purposes. And so what Jesus does then is that he uses two different metaphors to explain how you can be born again. This is verses 10 through 15. So, come with me back to the passage. Verses 10 through 15. Verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus shows how you can be born again. Uh, To be fair, he seems a little bit frustrated at Nicodemus, so he changes the metaphor from being born again to how to enter the kingdom of God, how to enter heaven, or how to have eternal life. How to have heaven or how to have eternal life. And he has two points to make about how it's all possible. They're both printed there on your handout. Firstly, the Son of Man came from heaven, so he knows the way back. The Son of Man came from heaven, so he knows the way back. Now, we're going to see this most famously in John chapter 14. Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He has come from heaven, so he knows the way back. It's the image, I think, of if you're ever lost, then the best way to find your way to the destination is for someone who has already made it there to come back and take you by the hand and lead you all the way. More than that, though, as verse 14 goes on, Jesus is not just the best way to heaven, he is, in fact, the only way. John 14 again, verse 6, Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to come back to that idea in just a moment, but for now, all you need to hear, no other way would work anyway. Here's the second thing that Jesus has to say about how eternal life is possible, how to enter into heaven. Second point there on your handout, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up. That is, the way the Son of Man offers entry into the into heaven and into eternal life is by being lifted up. And as the passage shows from John 3, verses 14 and 15, this is both a reference to Numbers 12. Numbers 12, uh, that's the incident where the Israelites were miraculously saved from a plague of snakes. Uh, The way they were, was they looked up at a bronze snake that Moses elevated for them to see. It's the same image Jesus is using as of his own resurrection and ascension to glory. If you look to him, he who's at the Father's right hand, you will find your way to heaven. And both the illustrations that Jesus uses, they're meant to emphasise that at the end of the day, the work is done by God, and that you and I are just the beneficiaries. The work is done by God, you and I are just the beneficiaries. Take for example looking up at a sculpture of a bronze snake when you've been bitten that is not an effective form of medical treatment okay in case you're in any doubt it's the same with believing in the son of man you must to be born of water and the spirit you can only be born again by trusting in what jesus says he has done for you you cannot obligate him or compel him in every way in any way In both cases, Jesus is saying he has the way to heaven and eternal life, but it's only on his terms. There is, however, a sting in the tail. There is a sting in the tail when it comes to being born again or entering into heaven or having eternal life. You notice there in verse 15, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It doesn't say that everyone may have eternal life in him. It says that everyone who believes will have eternal life. And so, there's a little box on your page. What I'm trying to say here is that Christians are not universalists. Christians are not universalists. This is the term that describes those who think that in the end, everyone will be saved. Christians are not universalists. Actually, Christians are exclusivists the only way in which we can be saved is through jesus well let's see what happens next verses 16 through 18 back in john chapter 3 verse 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Uh, Now, for good reason, John 3.16 is perhaps the most famous and most quoted verse from the Bible. Notice once again that it's an explicit rejection of universalism John 3.16, God so loved the world, but only those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And yet, Jesus doesn't emphasise the limits of exclusivism, the fact that some won't be saved. Verse 17, the reason he sent his son wasn't to condemn the world, but to save the world. And of course, because our default status is that we are condemned, verse 18, this is why Christians have always been committed to a mission. That's why in this church, we are always talking about evangelism. Not just because we want others to have what we have been so blessed to receive, that is true, But because every single person who has ever been, or whoever will be, is lost and dead and condemned without Christ. Let's see how the episode finishes. Verses 19 through 21. Verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Uh, Jesus rounds out this episode by acknowledging, once again, that he won't be well received by everyone. That's verse 19. Uh, Actually, he talks about being in darkness, which I think, once again, is a metaphor for exclusivism. Jesus is saying, left to our own devices, we will never find our way forward. I think, if you will, of being lost in a forest in the middle of the night, of a moonless night, stumbling around in the pitch black, unable to even work out which direction to take a step forward. But, interestingly, Jesus finishes this whole episode Positively. Positively with Nicodemus. Because remember, Jesus has not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. In verse 21, Jesus basically says to Nicodemus, if you want to believe in me, then you have to get on board with me. That is, you have to be public about your faith. And so he says to Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus at night, remember? He says to him, Step into the light. Well, the episode finishes at that point and we're not told what Nicodemus Nicodemus did. I wonder if he did step forward or not. It's not said here, although I think eventually he did work out for himself who Jesus was and he saw his glory and it compelled him to stand up for him and with him and to be with him even in his darkest hour. Have a look with me at the passage I printed at the bottom of your handout. This is from John chapter 19. It's just after Jesus' death. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. John adds, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier Have visited Jesus at night. So, what for us? Let me finish with a question that I printed there at the very bottom of your handout. Why does God do all this for us? Why does He send His one and only Son? Well, the answer is not only because we needed Him to, we did. The answer that we see in John chapter 3. Is because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Did you know that this is the first time in John's account, the first time in three chapters that John has used the word love? And the first time he chooses to use it, he attributes it to God. I think so that we might know something of God's heart, God's motivation. God's reason for why he sent Jesus, not just because we needed him to, we did, we stood condemned without Christ. He did it because he loves us. Why does God do all this for us? Because he loves us. I have to say, if I were God, I wouldn't have bothered. I'd have given up on us by now from the way in which we treated him. I would have cut us loose by now. Thankfully, you know that I'm not God. I know I'm not God as well. But God loves us with a persistent, unfailing, everlasting love. Enough to send his one and only son. That means that nothing you have done or are presently doing or might ever devise in the future, no sin, past, present or future, can negate God's love for you if you will only come into the light. God's own Son will be lifted up and if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. You will enter the kingdom of God. It is no more complicated than that. There is no reason to reject Him No excuse for ignoring him. No need to live in self-denial about your past or wallow in the shame of your failings. Not if he loves you. How do you coax someone out of the darkness? How do you persuade them to step forward into the dazzling light? I found myself thinking this week, Imagine you came across someone who'd been imprisoned in a dungeon, confined underground for years. How would you persuade them to step into the light, which, to be honest, would seem utterly terrifying and overwhelming? Well, I suppose you could warn them about what will happen if they choose to stay where they are, lost in the darkness. I suppose you could do that. Although the thing is that Threats never really work, not in the long run. So maybe by reassuring them that God loves them and is waiting to cover them up and take them into his arms and protect them forever, maybe that would enable someone to step into the light. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in and through the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the extraordinary display of your deep compassion and love for all that you have made. We pray that you might enable us by your Spirit to believe in his name and so have eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.